Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hey all, this episode is part two of a two-part tale on the Rocketeer, Jack Parsons. If you're picking up from here, I recommend jumping into part one first. If you've already listened to part one, welcome back. This week's tale begins on the Pacific island of Oahu. The time, around 7.48am, Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941. Much of the world was now engaged in a brutal, mechanised war, fought largely with a kind of deadly machines that chew up 60 million people, then spit out the bones. Oahu, by extension of the neutrality of the empire who annexed them in 1898, had no dog in this fight. All the same, this day they would be rocked from their peaceful slumber by a sneak attack by the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service. 353 Japanese aircraft strafed and bombed the naval base at Pearl Harbor for 75 brutal minutes. The carnage was significant. All eight battleships on the base were damaged. Four sunk. Three cruisers, three destroyers, a mine layer, and 188 aircraft were either badly damaged or destroyed completely. More importantly, 2,403 Americans were murdered, a further 1,178 wounded. Mitsuo Fushida, the pilot who led the first wave, and ordered the second wave by uttering the words, Tora, Tora, Tora would soon report back that they had destroyed the entire U.S. Pacific Fleet. Seven and a half hours later, an official declaration of war, in the name of the Emperor Hirohito, ran on the front page of every Japanese newspaper. The declaration would be reprinted on all front pages, on the 8th of every month, till Japan finally surrendered in September 1945. Across the Pacific, this horrific act galvanized the USA into action. President Franklin D. Roosevelt appeared before Congress to deliver his Date Which Will Live in Infamy speech. In a little over seven minutes, Roosevelt captured the mood of the nation, selling Congress on the urgency of entering this just war against the fascists. Within an hour, all but one dissenter, uh, Jeanette Rankin, a lifelong pacifist representative from Montana, voted to take the war to the Axis powers. Now just like that, the Suicide Squad become extremely busy, Aerojet extremely wealthy. While this can't have sat well with many of them, the squad including a number of pacifists and communists, they were united in their hatred of fascism. Throughout 1942, they continued to labour in the Mojave Desert, making increasingly powerful jet engines. The military needed a safe propulsion system powered by a solid fuel source. After dozens of prototypes, Aerojet finally developed the Galsit 53, a rocket which fit the bill perfectly. Liquid asphalt was used as a binding agent, Parsons' idea, influenced by tales of Greek fire, a now lost weapon used by the Byzantine Empire, which sounds a little bit like napalm. This was the game changer. The addition of asphalt to the mix allowed indefinite storage, mass production, and usage in all weather conditions. Aerojet were now flat out busy producing rockets for the war effort. 
Alongside their recently hired lawyer and treasurer, Andrew Haley, Jack Parsons becomes something of a spokesman for the group, often travelling the country to meet with the top brass. This sudden prosperity and constant travel allowed Parsons' other life, as a rising star in the Ordo Templi Orientis, to take off also. On one trip to New York, he met Alistair Crowley's second in charge, Carl Germer. As with his prior correspondence with Crowley himself, Parsons impressed Germer. He also made a point of dropping in on the Library of Congress's poet laureate, Joseph Auslander, with copies of several of Crowley's books for the library's collection. As a well-connected man with an ability to sell a cult, it seems, Jack Parsons increased the membership of the OTO considerably. Unfortunately for some of the long-standing members of the OTO, a lot of the newcomers were drawn in with promises of greater sexual freedom. While sex magic made up much of their practice, the sex was always in support of their higher goals. Many of Parsons' new acolytes seemed only interested in the sex, not the magic. On the face of it, few seemed to typify this as much as Jack and Helen Parsons themselves. Jack was now having an open affair with Helen's 17-year-old sister, Betty. In retaliation, Helen began an affair with the leader, Wilfred T. Smith. The cult was generally supportive of all the bed-swapping, till Helen replaced Regina Carl as a priestess in the masses. At this point, several members started complaining the OTO had become one giant swingers party. In June 1942, Jack used his newfound wealth to rent, and then later buy the lease for, a new home for the members of the Agape Lodge. He rented 1003 Orange Grove Avenue, Pasadena, a large American craftsman-styled mansion in the former Millionaire's Row. While now well off, the stock market crash had cleaned out a lot of wealthy industrialists, and homes like 1003 Orange Grove, hereafter named the Parsonage, were going for a fraction of their former price. On June 9th, 1942, the OTO moved into the mansion, Parsons setting up a home lab in the carriage house. With plenty of space to practice magic, a growing sense of community amongst those living at the parsonage, and 25 acres of land to party on, the cult picked up 40 new members by the end of the year. Parsons even, slightly warily, introduced his colleagues at Caltech to the cult, putting on a secular party for the winter equinox. It was around this time that Crowley started bypassing Smith and asking Jack to lead a number of initiatives. Time poor from his commitments to the OTO, and often the worse for wear from long nights of drugs, sex, and alcohol-fueled parties, people at Aerojet started questioning Parsons' fitness to work on the project. Where some had formally accepted his interest in the occult as eccentricity, others started to show concern as Jack loudly chanted the hymn to Pan in the manner of a televangelist in full flight at rocket tests. In the might of Pan, I.O. Pan, I.O. Pan, Pan, I.O. To complicate matters, the FBI formally opened an investigation into the OTO's Agape Lodge yet again. Someone reported them as a devil-worshipping black magic cult. Suspicion fell on Regina Carl, now pushed to the side for Helen, or Grady McMurtry, a protege of Parsons, who some suspected as his wife first had affairs with Parsons and Smith then left him. Grady would, as it turned out, eventually lead the OTO, whereas Regina increasingly distanced herself from the cult. 
The bad publicity for the OTO would not go unnoticed by Crowley, who blamed Smith, not Parsons. This was undoubtedly helped along by Helen Parsons' pregnancy to Smith. Alistair Crowley, needing Wilfred Smith gone, came up with a novel plan to get rid of him. In Crowley's Lieber 132, he stated he'd gone over Smith's astrological chart again, and it was all rather impressive. Turns out Wilfred T. Smith was a god, and as it was hard to state which god, Crowley ordered him to tattoo 666 on his forehead, then go out into the desert to ponder on which god he was. Smith was told this may take a very long time. Wilfred Smith flat out refused the suicide mission and resigned. Crowley and Carl Germer then poisoned the well, spreading a rumour that Smith left after being caught raping a newcomer. At around this time, Parsons tried to resign, but Crowley convinced him to stay on. In the meantime, Aerojet continued their upwards trajectory, barely keeping to their order for 2,000 jet propulsion engines throughout 1943, then an even bigger order for 1944. Parsons kept on, as tired and seedy looking as ever these days, still chanting for him to pan at test flights. In 1944, Aerojet changed their name to the Jet Propulsion Lab. Thus far, we haven't really spoken anywhere near enough on Parsons' connection to another group of people, science fiction fans. It bears quick mention. Jack Parsons, like a lot of early rocketeers, was crazy for science fiction. From early on in his career, Parsons was regularly invited to speak at the Los Angeles Science Fiction League, a group of sci-fi lovers who regularly met at Clifford Clinton's Clifton's Cafe. As a regular visitor, he became friendly with a number of members, some of whom became regular visitors to the Parsonage, some even followers. Jack Parsons was also good friends with a number of science fiction writers. In March 1944, Astounding Science Fiction magazine published a story called Deadline, written by one Cleve Cartmill, a former newspaper reporter and accountant. It told the story of an alien commando trying to save their world from the alien Nazis who'd built a super bomb. The bomb in question was described in close detail and bore a remarkable resemblance to the bomb being built by the then-top-secret Manhattan Project in the Los Alamos desert. How did a non-technical guy, who I should mention was a regular visitor to OTO masses, know anything about uranium-235 bombs and the like? Authorities were very keen to find out. The story was eventually chalked up to coincidence, but it added more pages to the dossier on Parsons. In December 1944, the Jet Propulsion Lab sold 51% of its stock to the General Tire and Rubber Company. They had to in order to grow to meet the demand for their rockets. Most of the Suicide Squad were convinced by Andrew Haley to sell their shares. Jack sold his for $11,000 before being summarily dismissed. The General Tire and Rubber Company didn't want to keep an eccentric, charging occultist on the team regardless of how much he'd contributed to the project. Jack suddenly found himself at a loose end, just as the OTO saw a large drop-off in the membership. Needing more tenants to help pay the bills, Jack placed an ad in the paper, stating, quote, Only bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or any other exotic types need to apply for rooms. End quote. Enter Ron in late 1945. 
It could be easy to get lost in the weeds over on. His could be a full tale of history and imagination in his own right. He grew up on naval bases as a military brat, and joined the Navy becoming one of their worst ever sea captains in World War II. At one point he attacked an island in a mistaken belief that he'd found a submarine. Ronald lived a life full of adventure and was full of tall tales. He was also a prolific science fiction writer, with connections to Parsons through the sci-fi circles. He soon became a well-loved guest of Parsonage, especially so by Betty, Parsons' now de facto wife. It didn't take long for Ron and Betty to start a sexual relationship, and for Betty to move out of Jack's room and into Ron's. Animosity grew between the two men. From December 1945, Jack Parsons more or less disappeared into his bedroom. All day long he could be heard chanting arcane rites, allegedly passed down from Elizabeth I's astrologer John Dee. Noisy, violent chants which had everyone in the parsonage convinced Jack was trying to summon a demon to drag Ron down to hell. Over and over again, in frenetic two-hour sessions, Jack would chant at his altar. In the background, Prokofiev's second violin concerto, on endless repeat on the record player. Tenants of the parsonage reported strange winds, light beams, and power cuts during the rituals. At some point in the ritual, Parsons sensed Ron may be a lightning rod for all this energy he was tapping into, leading to Ron's unwilling participation in the rituals. After a few weeks, where guests claimed to hear voices and see spirits, one of whom looked like the godlike but still very much alive Wilfred T. Smith, Jack and Ron ventured out, at sunset, into the Mojave Desert. As one chanted, the other claimed to see visions, no doubt so he could just get home to Parson's wife. After several hours, the air changed. A massive weight fell off Parson's shoulders. The spell was cast. Jack Parsons wasn't trying to summon a demon to kill Ron. He was trying to conjure up a new wife. When the two men returned home, Marjorie Cameron, an artist also known as Candy, was waiting to meet the master of the house. She was looking for accommodation, and heard it was just the kind of place she was looking for. Parsons would later write to Crowley, quote, I have my elemental, end quote. Jack and Candy soon become an item. The following year was not uneventful, but to sum up quickly, Jack and Ron summoned another being, a goddess Jack called Babylon, to keep Crowley company. Crowley changed the spelling to B-A-B-A-L-O-N, for astrological reasons I don't understand. The culture of the parsonage and of the OTO in general changed. It suddenly became a bit more aligned with the beatniks, a bit more hip and, and cool. And Jack started to feel old and a little square, but he also missed his business. So he handed in notice to the OTO and gave notice to his tenants of the parsonage that he was selling the property and moved into the carriage house. He went into business with Ron and Betty. The first plan was for Ron and Betty to travel to Miami with $20,000 of Jack's money to buy three yachts. The yachts would then be transported back to California to be sold for a profit. Unfortunately for Jack, Ron and Betty ran off with the money. They did buy a yacht, the Harpoon, and planned to sail off into the sunset together. After first a magic invocation to the god Mars to stop the couple, 
Jack got himself on a plane down to Miami and through the courts did actually manage to stop them from stealing all of his money. But all the same, Ron bigamously married Betty. He'd abandoned but never divorced his first wife during World War II. After a failed attempt to rewrite the rules of psychology, a system he called Dianetics, Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, formed his own far more successful religion than Aleister Crowley's ever would be. By 1953, he established the Church of Scientology. When later asked about his time at the parsonage, he claimed the Navy sent him there to bust up the cult and rescue Betty Northrup. The post-war years were hard on Jack in many other ways. At first, he seemed content with his new role, a job at North American Aviation, and happy to put the OTO behind him. On October 19, 1946, now long divorced from Helen and over Betty, he married Candy. Aware of the impediments or lack of any formal education posed, Jack took night courses in advanced mathematics. He wrote to Crowley, but Crowley was now lost to heroin addiction and would pass on in 1947. It's unsure if Crowley ever wrote back. In 1948, however, the first rumblings of the communist witch hunts began. A number of members of the Suicide Squad were outed as members of the Communist Party and lost their security clearances. Jack was stripped of his clearance for attending a few meetings. He lost his job because of this. Candy left Jack and moved to an artist commune in Mexico. At first, Jack took any odd jobs he could find, and in 1949 sued to get his security clearance back. He'd never been in the Communist Party, why should he lose his livelihood over something he never was? He won his case and was restored to his old job with back pay. This turned out to be a Pyrrhic victory. He'd subsequently be stripped of his clearance again and let go after a decision stating his connections to the OTO and to Alistair Crowley made him undesirable. He found work setting up explosions for movie sets and working for Howard Hughes. In 1950, Jack sent a proposal to the newly established State of Israel to set up a rocket program for the country. The Israelis were interested and asked Parsons to work up some costings. In doing so, he lent on costings on a similar project he was working on for Hughes and asked the secretary to type up his proposal for him. She panicked, contacting the FBI. Parsons was now under investigation for international espionage. Reporters started to dig into the former sex cult on Orange Grove Avenue and Parsons slumped into a deep depression. Hearing the news, Candy returned to Jack immediately. Which brings us, more or less, full circle. By 1951, Jack Parsons was cleared of the espionage charges. Candy was back. He was getting enough work from Hollywood to keep a roof over his head. Knowing his security clearance was gone forever, Jack and Candy planned to sell up the carriage house and move to Mexico. Stage one of the move was to clear a warehouse full of explosives he'd accumulated, and for now at least, store them in the basement lab. He packed up his lab in the days before the move, and arranged for tenants to take over the carriage house. On moving day, a final order came in from the movie makers in Tinseltown. We know you're crossing the border, but could we bother you for one more job? All his equipment packed away, Jack Parsons prepared his final pyrotechnic display in an old coffee mug. On June 17th, 1952, at 5.08pm, 
A deafening explosion caught the attention of the suburb of Pasadena. At its epicenter, the carriage house, once belonging to 1003 Orange Grove Avenue, a 37-year-old man lay dying. Though an unheralded innovator, his genius helped the Allies win World War II, and his innovations would play a part in the winning of the space race. All talk was on the other part of his life. Some commented on the sex cult on Orange Grove Avenue in the 1940s, and the alleged demonic rituals there. Others on his professional and personal struggles after the war. Heard his wife left him for a science fiction writer. Wasn't he fired after spying for the communists or the Israelis or someone? Others looked to his battles with depression in his later years, claiming the explosion a suicide attempt. Those in the know, no doubt, knew Parsons sweated a lot in the lab. Without his professional equipment, they supposed his hand slipped, dropping the mug. With a lab full of unusual of dangerous chemicals, the resulting accident was far worse than it may have been. It is here, where we started this tale, that we leave our unlucky protagonist. Okay, one more thing. Out in space, 384,400 kilometers, give or take, from our planet is a large moon orbiting Earth. As it moves in what scientists call a synchronous rotation, meaning that it never spins, we only ever get to see one side of the moon. The side we don't see is heavily pockmarked with craters. We know this because rockets finally did reach escape velocity and left the planet. All manner of spacecraft have since photographed the so-called dark side. China, of all nations, finally landed a probe there in 2019. Some features are named after mythical figures like Apollo and Daedalus. Others, likely at the very least a semi-mythical figure, like the Chinese inventor Wan Hu, who I should talk about more at some point. Others for scientists like J. Robert Oppenheimer and Theodore von Kármán. On the far side of the moon is an impact crater, 40 kilometers across, oval in shape. A little west-northwest of Krylov, east of Moore. In 1972, it was named Parsons, in honor of Jack Parsons, the true father of modern rocketry. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.